All right, please be seated. Um, I'm excited to be here with you guys tonight, um, examining God's Word with you. Um, don't get to do this often, so I'm very glad when I'm able to. If I don't look familiar um, to some of you, A, it's probably because I uh, recently had a haircut and lost about six to seven pounds um, of hair. Uh, and B, if I don't look familiar, it's probably because I'm kind of quarantined in this back section of the church. Uh, I am the junior high youth pastor here uh, at Grace. My name is Landon Ditto. Um, how many junior high parents do we have here tonight, actually? All right. All right. So we've got a, got a room full of familiar faces. You, um, uh, I will be sending you personally the bill um, for my blood pressure uh, medication um, that I have to get monthly as a result of your children. Um, but no, honestly, I love what I do. I feel that I have a great, great job. I'm honored to serve um, you, honored to serve your students, honored to serve at a church um, like this that values um, youth and values the Word of God. So um, honored to be here, excited um, to be here teaching you guys tonight. Um, I love this series. Um, I love this series that we've been looking at, and if you've been at all this summer, you know that the series that we're um, going through as a staff is called The Message of Salvation. Um, and the reason I think that I found value in this, in this series is that it's foundational to our beings um, as believers, as Christians. Um, some of the wisest counsel, some of the deepest comfort comes from this simple message of salvation. And I think if we begin to view Scripture as a whole, as, as this divinely orchestrated message of salvation, you know, not a magical book for where do I invest my money and where do we move and what job do I get and who do I date, but if we begin to see God's overarching purpose for our lives in this message, we begin to get this book, we begin to get this message and see how it applies to our lives. You see, when we get this message, it's where we find hope. And, you know, maybe to you sitting there tonight saying, okay, well, this simple stuff about salvation and the gospel and the cross, I got it, I got it. Practically speaking, how does it help? How does it answer questions? How does it, how does it answer um, what I'm going through at, at my job? What I'm dealing with with my kids? Maritally speaking, how does it answer questions? Guys, I believe that hopefully through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit tonight, as we see, as we further get this message of salvation, we see that it, 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 it rights all of the wrongs in life. We see that it offers hope. We see that it offers counsel, wise counsel, and deep comfort. And so that's why I think it's important that we're looking at this this summer. Um, and the groundwork has been laid well for, for us this evening. Um, again, I know probably some of you have been in and out with vacations and camps and baseball and soccer and this and that. But the rest of the staff has done a great job in laying some good groundwork as we're kind of going through this. Um, you know, just in the past few weeks, we've seen that this message of salvation, it keeps bringing us back to the cross. You know, we see that Christ's death, it rescued us from sin. One week we looked at how it redeemed us from slavery. It covered our guilt. Um, it turned away God's wrath. It, it, it even made us friends with God. Here's my question tonight, and here's where I want to camp. But what proof do we have? What proof is there that God's justice was satisfied at Calvary? And, and, and why is it important that, that Christ truly died and truly rose again? You see, and Paul attempts to uncover some of these questions in our text tonight that we're going to be looking at. And let me set it up before um, we turn there. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13. Um, we're going to examine a few verses out of Acts. Um, but let me set it up before we read a few verses. You see, 
Paul is about halfway through his first missionary journey at this point. And what we're about to read is, in essence, a sermon um, that he's preaching to Jews and Gentiles alike. So what I want to do is read verses 38 through 49, um, just a small excerpt um, from a larger text that I'm really attempting to cover tonight. So if you have your Bibles, um, follow along as we read verses 38 through 49 um, of Acts 13. Verse 38 reads this, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Let me pray over that briefly. Father, Lord, I pray that um, through Your Spirit, um, that the truth of Your Word would change the way that we think and it would change the way that we live. We ask these things in Your name. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you out there are TV junkies, um, but tonight I can very proudly boast that, that I really wouldn't consider myself uh, to be one. Now, you know, I have my certain show or two, and, and I try to keep up, and, you know, I hear what's hot, and I try to stay in the loop, and um, I don't know about how many of you know our senior pastor's show, his sacred show is 24. Um, just kind of a heads up to you guys. If if you are in need of, of ministry or any pastoral care between the hours of 7 and 8 on Monday evenings, um, just go down the list. If Dr. Young was at the top, you just need to uh, just scroll down a bit because I think the phone line would be disconnected. Uh, but that's his show, and I kind of have my show or two, but I'm not really a TV junkie. And, and you know, I keep up. And seemingly, uh, in, the, in the past few years, um, big shows with, with crime scenes and law enforcement and, and things like that have really just kind of made a big splash. And I'm not sure how many of you are CSI fans. Do we have any CSI fans? All right, so we got a, we got a few. Um, I've watched this show and, and uh, just a few times, and it's it's very interesting. Um, it is. I mean, the special effects and the acting's good, and just the, the technology that goes into it. it's a great. You know, it looks like a great show. And I think the most interesting aspect about the show is the means used to prove something. You know, to prove a crime, to prove someone's innocence. You know, to prove that this hair follicle matches this person's, or to prove that this tire track matches, you know, so-and-so's tire, you know, and and things like that. And so, the whole show is based around this concept of proof. You know, and isn't that what our culture likes? 
proof that this thing works. You know, proof that the five-step solution to weight loss is, is going to work. Guys, what I want to propose tonight is this. What we have is much greater than a Hollywood forensics team that's recreating a crime scene. What we have is some proof. And Paul's big push in this text is this. As believers, we have positive proof that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was not only genuine, but it was sufficient for salvation. Did you get that? As believers, we have positive proof that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was genuine and sufficient for salvation. You see, the resurrection of Christ in and of itself, it proves that we have a saving God. You know, how can we be certain that Jesus had really dealt with our sin and, and its terrible consequences like guilt and isolation and suffering and even death? You see, we have proof of, our rex- of the resurrection of our Christ. And that's where I want to camp out here for a bit this evening and see how that applies and how that should affect our lives. You see, Paul was preaching this message of salvation to a crowd that seemingly needed proof. And he was dealing with these people in a a way that very confidently, not blindly, and he did it accurately. He didn't sugarcoat it with churchy lingo. He very straightforward said, here is the deal. Guys, don't we need that affirmation in our own lives? Don't we need that um, with the people that we interact with? You know, didn't our own hearts need that before Christ? And so I think we have to understand this, and this is where I want you to hang your hat on. We have to understand that as believers, there's much at stake in being certain about Christ's resurrection. And don't brush that off and say, oh, well, yeah, obviously I'm sitting in a church building. Yeah, 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 I believe it. Because there is much at stake in being certain about Christ's resurrection. Because whenever the New Testament presents this message of salvation, it always preaches the crucifixion plus the resurrection. Paul realized this. If he had a sermon title, if he was standing up here and you know had a, had a clicker and had PowerPoint, it, he would pop this up. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's his big push. Simply put, to these people that he is teaching, that is his sermon title. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's his main point. Guys, we have many texts that drive this home. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 preaches this. It says, And Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 1 Corinthians 15 echoes by saying, By this gospel you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Guys, so for the next few minutes that I have, um, I just want to unfold three things in our text that point us towards the evidence and the importance of the resurrection uh, of our Savior. First thing I'm going to look at is this. History does not lie. History does not lie. I'm going to read, um, starting in verse 28 to 31, What Paul is presenting here, he's just presenting as pure historical fact. Listen to verse 28. He says, And though they found him, this is talking about Jesus, and though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. 
as Paul presents this as pure historical fact. You see, the biblical Gospels don't argue for the resurrection. Okay? They simply state it as plain historical fact. Well, naturally the question comes into play, okay, so, so can that be trusted? Can that be trusted? You know, can we believe in the resurrection that Paul is preaching about as a historical fact? Guys, this is no new question. And uh, I can promise you that, that Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Codes were not the first to, uh, to raise something like this. This is no new question. Literally, hours after Christ's resurrection, plots and lies were already being put into place to disprove this message, this fact. Consider a document that was put together um, by a group of, of Buddhists towards the end of the 20th century that reads this. What the Christians are preaching that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to redeem the sinners of the world with His holy blood, is totally false teaching. The real truth is that Jesus Christ was defeated in His mission works and is paid for His own wrongdoings. Guys, objections like these demand answers. And why? Not just so that we can be the Christians on this team that have our theological things together and we can combat this, but for this reason... There's no salvation without the resurrection. There is no salvation without the resurrection. The Word clearly states this, and again in Corinthians it says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Guys, these are big, big things that are staked on this fact. This is where we hang the hat of, of who we are in Christ, of who we are as, as Christians. And without taking you too much into a, a pure lecture of apologetics of how we can historically defend the gospel, there are so many ways that we can poke holes historically. Um, just a few, just, just uh, very quickly. One of the oldest arguments is, is um, uh, the body was stolen. You know, one, I think one of the best ways to historically defend our position um, as believers is to look at alternatives. Okay, where was the body? And one of the oldest things, oh, well, well, it was stolen. Oh, well, let's consider that. Let's consider that. First, you have disciples who would have had to um, overcome and overtake highly trained Roman soldiers. And then they would have had to risk and completely put their lives on the line for something that they knew to be a lie. You see, we have historical evidence that the tomb was empty because there's so many records that show that, that the Roman soldiers were paid a high price to kind of make up a story and say, oh, while we were asleep, it was stolen. So we know that. We know this. Um, a, a recent, somewhat recent theory that's come out is something called the swoon theory. Um, this is basically that, oh, well, Jesus fainted. Didn't really die on the cross. He fainted and for three days was kind of in a, in a coma um, type state. Well, guys, there's, there's tons and, and, and pounds of medical evidence that, that put this away. First, again, you have to consider highly trained Roman soldiers, soldiers who did this on a regular basis would have had to just miss the fact that someone wasn't really dead. You know how in the Scriptures it confirms that not a bone in Jesus' body was broken? And what they would do, you probably are familiar with, if someone was on the verge of death but wasn't quite dead yet, they would break the legs so they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. Jesus' legs were never broken. You also have the, the medical evidence of um, the piercing of a side which produced a flow of blood and water. Medical evidence of a genuine death. 
Or what about, and this is historical record, the hundreds who came into personal contact with Jesus after the crucifixion? Was everyone hallucinating? Was everyone banned together for this lie? You see, guys, there's, there's tons of holes that can be poked into these alternatives, even historically speaking. All right, so to this point, you're saying, okay, well, well, how does this encourage, how does this practically speak into my life? And here's the point of application I want to make um, to you tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a God who is sovereign. Not just sovereign over the church, not just sovereign over Christian things. We have a God who is sovereign even over the reaches of history and cultural fads and lies and distortions of truth. We just sang a song called Jesus Christ, Our Sure Foundation. And the second verse is one of my favorite. It says, Shepherd, guardian, he who teaches, on whose grace the church depends, listen, tending it through history's reaches, and will keep it to the end. Guys, what an encouraging thing that, that no amount of cultural fads can snuff out the message of the gospel. You know, no amount of, of Bible-burning rallies... Um, Hollywood can't produce believable enough films to thwart God's saving purpose. You see, history clearly proves that a man named Jesus walked this earth, died, and was resurrected. And what I want to ask you and how I want to apply this, do you ever find yourself oftentimes maybe being discouraged, sometimes even drug into doubt as a result of the sin that you're surrounded in? Are the sinful efforts of our culture and the sinful efforts of man to disprove this very message? Do you ever find yourself discouraged as Christians? I think you do. Oftentimes I talk to parents who seem almost defeated and somewhat overwhelmed anytime they, they turn on the news, anytime they open up a newspaper, scroll the internet, sit in a movie. And you know, I talk to them often, and, and yes, I agree, things are, are bad and, and don't seem to be getting any better. But sometimes their attitude seems to be one of hopelessness, saying, God, is it, is it slipping out of your control? I mean, do you, have you seen what they can put on CBS now? Have you seen what the kids are saying now and doing at school and not allowed to do? I mean, are you seeing this? And it's almost this attitude of, God, is it, is it, is it slipping out? Guys, be encouraged by this fact. We have a God who has been God throughout history, and has preserved the truth of the risen Savior to His benefit, to His glory, and our benefit. Even historically speaking, things can't be pinned um, that are going to thwart God's saving purpose. Theories can't be derived and made up that are going to um, eventually lead everyone over this way. God is a sovereign God, even over history. second point I want to see is this. God's Word does not lie. History does not lie. We, we see historical things. And then one thing that Paul drives home is that his, God's Word does not lie. You see, in the previous verses of this chapter, the ones that I didn't um, read, Paul is basically giving a historical survey um, and he's reminding his audience, he's reminding his listeners that God is a God who saves. He does this by pointing oftentimes to the New Testament. I'm sorry, to the Old Testament. What he's doing is he affirms he shows, he proves the validity of Christ's death and His resurrection through God's Word. See, Paul's not content with merely claiming the resurrection of, as historical fact. He's not content with, with just saying, well, here, you know, you can pinpoint this, and this happened at this time, and it just historically it adds up. He wasn't content with just historically proving the message of salvation. 
You see, he wants to also proclaim it as biblical fulfillment. And so just in this sermon, he mentions three Old Testament prophecies that had a direct relationship to Christ's resurrection. See, remember his audience. We see a few. Look in verse 34 if you have your Bibles. He's referring to the Old Testament when he's preaching. He says this. He says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Look at verse 35. He says, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, referencing God's word, You will not let your holy ones see corruption. Look in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he lists something that he references God's word again. Verse 47, same thing. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Referencing God's word. Using God's word to prove, to show, to affirm that this message is true. You see, this whole book is intertwined to point us to this one message, to this one Savior. And Paul is saying that through this text, through what he's preaching, what he's saying. He's saying, look, history's not just proclaiming it. God's Word, God's written Word is proclaiming it. Look at how these things add up. Things that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago that, that line up perfectly to what has just taken place. He's using God's Word as the standard of truth. Point of application for your life. Guys, is it not encouraging to know that we have something that is the standard of truth? Is it encouraging that the promises that we find in this book uh, are true? And that the Holy Spirit confirms that fact in our own hearts? You see, we have a reliable source that can be trusted and, and can be applied. You know, one thing that's interesting about this, not only is, is Paul's use of the Scriptures to prove the Gospel, is that encouraging? But does it not give us a great model in how to encounter a hurting family member, a lost co-worker, a troubled child? Does that not give us a great model on what to look for, what to, to put our trust in, what to put our faith in? You see, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to truth, He affirms in hearts he affirms in hearts that the written word is valid. And what better counsel do we have than this? Guys, that's encouraging. That means that we don't have to come up with our own little theories. We don't have to sit in front of Oprah or Dr. Phil and say, well, I don't know what to tell my friend who's going through this. We have something that gives us counsel. And the Holy Spirit affirms that on the hearts of believers. Third thing I want to look at is this. Not only um, does history point to this resurrection, point to the Savior. Not only does God's Word point to it, perhaps the most important thing is the changed life does not lie. You see, in Paul's sermon of the risen Christ, it wasn't just historical and it wasn't just biblical, it was practical. You see, he even closes with, with this application in verse 38 when he says this. If you have it open, read 38 and 39. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Here's action. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In essence, Paul is saying you want proof that this thing is real. You want proof that this thing is real. Believe and trust and look at the changed life after Christ. 
You see, one of the richest models of this is not merely Paul who's preaching this, who obviously underwent an enormous um, conversion, an enormous powerful life change. Got some, some awesome evidence towards this. Look at the disciples after the resurrection. Look what took place. The transformation that took place in their own lives is unbelievable. It's remarkable. You think about it. One minute they're cowering in fear, hiding, fearful that they will lose their lives if they're associated or, or preach this or proclaim this. One minute they're cowering in fear. And then only days later they're boldly proclaiming the risen Christ with, with no fear at all. How unnatural is that? How else can that be explained? The changed life because of Christ's work does not lie. The changed life because of Christ's work does not lie. Now, that does not, that does not mean perfection. That does not mean that we're perfect. Um, obviously, we don't base who God is and what His message is off man. Man is flawed. Man is sinful. We don't look around and say, this is true because looking at man. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean this. The, genuine, the genuinely redeemed heart, the one who genuinely believes the work of Christ on the cross is some of the most direct proof that there is because it shows an unnatural change. It shows an unnatural calling. So the changed life of, of these disciples, the changed life of even the, the, the pastor who's preaching, Paul here, is great evidence to the validity of this resurrection. Point of application for your life. Is this us? That's what I ask. Is, is this us? Do our lives prove the supernatural changing power of the gospel? Have you ever thought about and looked at salvation in that light? Have you ever looked at the, the, that part of the great proof can be found in our changed hearts, in our changed lives? Ephesians 2 speaks about how we're made to get made alive together in Christ. I want to close with this simple point. Um, the call that the gospel places on our lives is it, it's one that, that seems and looks unnatural. You know, when, when we're humble people, when we're forgiving people, when we're loving people, when we're poor in spirit, um, when we're peacemaking, when we're serving, when we're growing worshipers, we're proofs to a very strange concept. The concept that, that the perfect only Son of God would take on human form, walk the earth to demonstrate God's love, be killed on a tree to take our punishment, and rise again to defeat sin... Does that sound strange? Not to the redeemed sinner. People say, doesn't this thing need, need proving more though? It's got so many tentacles, so many implications. If this thing, if this message is true, if it's right. I mean, it's just so far-fetched. Doesn't, doesn't it need to be proved further? Guys, we have proof. We have positive proof that the, and, and the most important of those proofs is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's seen in our lives. Yes, history points to Christ. Yes, God's Word and, and all the biblical record points to Christ. But as we leave here, as we leave here tonight, may we be in, a, in an attitude of prayer that the Lord would provide us with the grace needed to continue proving this message of salvation with our own lives and our own attitudes and our own actions. 
Hopefully that's your prayer. Let me, let me close in prayer. Father, Lord, as we open up the truth of your word, we are, um, Lord, we're convicted by things that we read in it. Um, Lord, we, we further see who you are and we further see who we are. Lord, that I pray that as we've looked at this thing that, Lord, we have, have possibly made ourselves too familiar with, Lord, where we flippantly um, toss around in our heads this message. Lord, remind us of how profound this gospel is. Remind us of how nothing else ticks, nothing else beats without this. Lord, we thank You for proof. Lord, we thank You for the proof that You've written on our hearts for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, and because of that, may we strive to love You and be drawn closer to You. And Lord, give us the grace needed to live lives that are worthy. Lord, of this great and and, and strange calling that You've placed on the believer's life. We thank You for Your Word. We ask these things in Your name. Amen.